All right, Jesse. after last week, I'm definitely sticking with liquid gels or tablets moving forward. What do you got for me today? This week is all about a deadly doctor, his dark secrets, and the committed women who would eventually take him down. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about families betrayed, vows broken, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy, I am super jazzed about this story today, but I did want to say hey to everybody looking out for that bonus episode I promised you last week. It is coming. Just turns out when there's two podcasts involved, sometimes getting files to each other is a little bit more complicated than Andy and I just rolling and riffing. Rolling and riffing. That's how I would describe our podcast style. (laughs) (laughs) So we have the Defense Diaries with Bob Mata crossover coming soon. It's going to be a surprise, guys. It's a surprise for me. So it'll drop into your feed and it'll be a bonus love murder day. Woo. All right. Well, with that being said, I think it's time to talk about some murder. It was an ordinary spring day on April 11th, 2007 in Pleasant Grove, Utah, in a subdivision called Creekside, a safe, peaceful place where it seemed nothing bad had ever happened. That's why Christy Daniels was shocked around midday when six-year-old Ada McNeil showed up pleading at her doorstop for help. As she followed the little girl across her driveway, she heard the sound of a man's screams from within the house. Uh, scary? So scary. Christy told the scared six-year-old to stay on the lawn and followed the sound of the screams through the house to the master bathroom, where she found her neighbor, a tanned, in-shape doctor in his 50s named Martin McNeil, yelling for help and his beautiful blonde wife, half-dressed, wet, and unconscious in the draining, murky bath. Which is... Also so scary, too, because I don't know how I mean, you know, your neighbors really, really well, but I'm like friendly, like wave friendly and know their names to most of my neighbors. But like they were not super duper friendly. So you go from like, you know, saying hi to each other over the garbage cans to, oh, my God, I'm in your house. I've never been in your house before. And something is very, very wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. Super scary. So Christy fled to call 911 while Martin yelled to have her husband, Doug, come assist him as he said he could not lift his wife out of the bath. 911 was called and Doug rushed to help Martin and together they heaved Michelle's body out of the jacuzzi tub and onto the bath mat below. Michelle's beautiful face was marred by a thick, cloudy mucus that oozed from her mouth and nose. Ew! She also had sutured incisions, weeping blood across her eyelids and around her scalp. What? Well, at first, Christy was completely taken aback, as was her husband. But then Martin started loudly cursing his wife, saying, why? Why? All for some stupid surgery. 
And he explained to the couple that Michelle had recently had a facelift. Okay. While Martin and Doug attempted CPR, Christy and her husband were startled by Martin's disposition. At once, he could be analytical and instructive, and in the next breath, screaming with anger and fury. Furthermore, Doug knew that the way Martin was doing the CPR and telling Doug how to help was not the right way to do CPR, but he was like, this is really weird. This guy's a doctor. Yeah. He should know, so I'm going to do what he says but he could tell that he wasn't doing it correctly and he kept like stopping and yelling at Michelle even though it was very clear that she was not going to be able to be revived so he's just like yelling at his unconscious wife like why did you do this why did you take all that medication so two police officers were the first on the scene and they took over for the adult doctor and his neighbor And they managed very quickly through CPR to expel several cups of clear liquid from Michelle's body. After increased rounds of CPR, Michelle's skin had regained a pinkish hue. However, she was still not conscious. Firefighters and paramedics swarmed the house and the medics soon determined that Michelle was in cardiac arrest. As the professionals worked, Martin's behavior became erratic, desperate, and unhinged. He stomped and ranted and even cursed God. He said, after all I've done for you, after all the time I've spent in church, I've been a bishop. I paid tithing. This is the way you repay me. When he wasn't cursing God, he was cursing his wife for the surgery, for taking too much medication. Martin was actually asked to leave the room and the paramedics briefly considered restraining the doctor as his outbursts were so aggressive and distracting. Oh my God, Martin. Martin, it's a little too much, Martin. You're putting on a little thick there. Yeah. For 20 minutes, the paramedics attempted to revive Michelle. And then when they knew they weren't succeeding, they rushed her via ambulance to the hospital. I'm shocked that they tried that long before rushing her to the hospital. Well, I think that they were doing it based on Martin's information. And he said that she had only been unconscious for like 15 minutes and they thought that they could revive her as she was otherwise healthy. So the attending physician at the ER took one look at the body of the kind, beautiful Michelle McNeil and knew At once, she was deceased. Blood had already begun to pool in the lower part of her body, causing blotchy purple bruising known as lividity. Michelle was healthy and only 50 years old. She had no history of heart problems. And like I said, according to her husband, she'd only been out for 15 minutes. So the resuscitation efforts should have worked. When the doctor attempted to break the news to her husband, Martin... He went completely hysterical. He begged the ER doctor on duty to continue resuscitation attempts, even going as far to offer the man $10,000 to continue attempting to revive his wife. Oh, my gosh. Just throw money the at it. it. Like He's like, wait, is this guy trying to bribe me? And also it was <laughs> to weird. do my job. <laughs> To do my job, and he said is like, he's had obviously desperate loved ones in the ER. He sees them all the time. He's like, I've never had somebody try to bribe me, and I have never had a fellow doctor not recognize the signs that she was already deceased, you know? Yep, yep. So he called the time of death somberly, and he left a weeping Martin behind. 
To almost all who surrounded Martin, it seemed as though he was simply a man deeply mourning the sudden loss of a beloved wife. And we all know how grief can manifest in weird ways. Maybe intense anger and bargaining were Martin's? After all, Michelle and Martin seemingly had the perfect life. A big, beautiful house, Martin's successful medical career, eight loving children, eight, eight kids, and a solid community within their Mormon faith. Martin and Michelle, a former model and beauty queen, had always looked the part of the perfect couple. But as we know, looks can be deceiving. It would take years and some dedicated work on the behalf of Michelle's most dear to finally reveal long-held secrets and bring a murderer most foul to justice. A Martin murderer? Perhaps. Perhaps a Dr. Martin McMurderer. McMurderer. (laughs) Oh, Martin. let's talk about Michelle. Michelle Marie Summers was born on January 15th, 1957, as one of seven kids in Concord, California. Yeah, so this is why I think they had eight kids, because they both they both actually came from big families. Could you imagine? I have two, and it feels like a million. I just got back from the longest car ride ever. We hit traffic in a, a ride. This was be four and a half hours, turned into six. And I think... At one point, I was like, just leave me on the side of the road and go. Just as long as I could get out of this car. Just leave me. I, I would rather take my chances out there without money than in this car with these children. <laughs> oh so no, God. Andy, I cannot imagine. Like what kind of car? Of- Those don't even fit in a car. You know, you have to like get a transit vehicle. <laughs> you have to get a city bus, a repurposed school bus. A people mover. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. All of you listeners from big families, raising big families, our hats are off to you because I can barely deal with the two I have. So there was a huge age difference too. Also with all these kids, all of her brothers were older and all of her sisters were younger, which was like a funny dichotomy. But by the time she was born, most of her older brothers were actually out of the house at that point. Like her mom started having kids in her teens. So So Michelle was very, very close to her sisters, especially her youngest and the closest in age, Linda. Growing up, Michelle was lovely and just a loving child. She was happy and sweet, as well as extremely bright. And she had a distinct love of learning, everyone said. In her teen years, she blossomed into a stunning beauty. And I know, guys, I always say they're good looking. But Nathaniel actually agreed with me on this one. He's like, no one's going to believe you anymore. You're like the girl that cried beauty. (laughs) (laughs) but i'm going to put up pictures of michelle on the instagram probably a day late i'm sorry guys i'm really trying but she looks kind of like carrie fisher but with farrah fawcett blonde hair so like i know it's kind of a weird dichotomy but think of princess leia with those big beautiful brown eyes and instead, she's wearing a Farrah Fawcett wig. wig instead of the buns. <laughs> instead of the buns. So it's like a very young Carrie Fisher with like lots and lots of blonde hair. She was like five, seven, like the perfect body type, like slender, but also curvy. And she had this like the feathered hair of the time. She's very California girl, you know? The feathered hair is definitely an upgrade from the buns. <laughs> I think so too. I love a Farrah. 
So yeah, she was a super babe. She was also really focused and well-behaved as a teen. She was a devout Mormon. As a result, she didn't drink, smoke, or use alcohol, nor did she have premarital sex. So despite being kind of a goody-goody, Michelle was a hugely popular cheerleader and was even voted homecoming queen. Oh, yeah, she's the California girl homecoming queen. In 1975, she graduated high school and moved to Mission Viejo in Orange County with her mother following her parents' divorce. There, she did some professional modeling, and in 1977, at the young age of 20 years old, she met a tall, handsome stranger at an LDS singles mixer. His name was, you guessed it, Martin McNeil. So her parents split up. That's like big in the Mormon church, isn't it? Especially back then. Yeah, they said like she had a generally very happy upbringing, but her dad was mostly absent from from her life. So it seemed like when they finally split up, it was kind of like no big deal because he had never really been much of a father. Got it. Okay. But her mother was incredible. And especially the mother and the sisters were very, very close. Now, Martin's upbringing could not have been any further from Michelle's. I mean, other than the fact that both their parents got divorced at some point, she was raised in sunny California with a mostly loving and financially comfortable family. Martin's childhood was plagued with extreme poverty, abuse, mental illness, and rampant alcoholism. Wow. Yeah, it's... We're going to get into it right now, and it is not pretty. Martin was born on February 1st, 1956, one of six kids to Father Albert and Mother Lillian. Lillian was 23 years younger than her husband and still a teenager when the two were wed. By the time Martin was born in Camden, New Jersey, Albert was 58 years old. Whoa. That's like, I mean, we're talking 1956. So like, that's hella old. That's really old. Because even now, like, there's only a handful of celebrities who are having kids at 58, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The May-December marriage was not a happy one. The couple drank and fought constantly, and Albert eventually abandoned his young wife and their six kids to run off to California. By himself or with like another brother? By himself. Wow. There might have been somebody else involved. It sounded like neither of the parents were 100% monogamous. And that was also what the fighting was about. Okay. So it doesn't say that he ran off for a woman, but I wouldn't be surprised if there had been another woman involved. Yep. Suffering from alcoholism and down on her luck, Lillian turned to sex work to provide for her family, which... As we've discussed, sex work is real work. However, she would operate her business from the cramped apartment she shared with her kids. Yikes. So Martin would later talk about how it was basically like a one-room apartment. And so she would just put up a curtain Mm -hmm. and entertain the clients on one side. So the kids had to listen to everything. Yeah. Which is really, 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 really rough. I mean, nobody wants to hear their parents having sex, let alone with strangers. Who are paying for it, yeah. Exactly. So it's it's still not confirmed, all of these stories that Martin told about his childhood, because as we'll come to find out in this show today, he's a huge liar. Yeah. But it is clear that at least some of these things happened or really bad things happened in this household because almost all of the McNeil children suffered greatly from 
different addiction issues to suicide. Like they all clearly had a very hard time, including his sister, Alice, who committed suicide in her early 20s by hanging herself. Oh, my God. His oldest brother, Albert Jr., died of alcoholism in a nursing home at the age of 64. He had another brother named Rufus Roy, who was a heroin addict and died of an apparent overdose in his mother's bathroom. Oh, wow. As well as his brother, Scott, who did seem to have escaped the curse. Uh, He went into the Marines and eventually married and had three kids, but then also committed suicide at the age of 45. Yeah, so that's four out of the six kids died of alcoholism or substance abuse. Or suicide, rather. Yeah. So it's rough. Only Mary, his oldest sister, seemed to get away from that lifestyle. She was, I think, one of the older kids. And so when the family fell apart, she also moved to California, not with the father. It sounds like she was old enough to kind of like move on her own and she got married and started a family there. Okay. In his mid-teens, Martin also eventually escaped and moved to California where he did live with his father. Martin was always handsome, even as a teen. He was tall and broad-shouldered with high cheekbones and a prominent jaw. He was also very, very smart. But despite the looks and brains, he was not popular. He was dramatic, quirky, unstable, and eccentric. So people were just very put off by him. Yikes. He apparently had a way of speaking that was almost like it was weirdly like fake. It was like he was trying to do a monologue or act like a human, you know, without feeling the feelings that are associated with it. And it was so bizarre that apparently his classmates named him Martin the Martian. Ooh. Yeah. As a teenager, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which sparked a lifelong interest in psychiatry. Martin developed an ability to study others' motives and weaknesses and would later be said to use this study of psychiatry to manipulate others around him. Okay. Oh, also, the book that we use today is called The Stranger She Loved by Shanna Hogan. Uh Uh-oh. I know. We love Shanna. So we've used Shanna before in our seventh ever episode, Exotic Dismemberment. I cannot believe you remember that. Number 28, the Aaron Corwin story. Remember that one? Yep. Yes. And Shanna writes with such incredible care, especially of the victims and their loved ones. And she goes so deep in these stories. It's really tragic. And I think you'll remember, Andy, that I told you about her untimely demise. Yep. Yep. So Shanna herself passed away when apparently she slipped in her pool, hit her head while she was swimming with her like early toddler kid. I think he was only like 15 months. Yep. And he had a flotation device on, thank God. And her husband came home and she was in a coma for like five days before she passed. And that was in 2019 or 2020? Yeah, it was it was fairly recently. Yeah. And 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 it really is like, I mean, it's a tragedy for her loved ones, but it's also, I have to say, a tragedy for the true crime community because her books are incredible. Yeah. I am obsessed with them. I think she would have gone on to be one of the greatest true crime writers of our generation if she had lived, unfortunately. So R.I.P. Shanna. She has one additional book. She has she had four books out when she passed away. And it's about Jody Arias. And I know people have done that case so much. So I don't know if I want to touch it yet, but I'm sure down the road we're going to get to it. And I'll definitely use her book. Okay, good. So 
we are using Shanna Hogan's book today. And this was uh, just some history that she provided about Martin. In 1973, Martin enlisted in the army. He was just 17, but claimed he was 18, which I feel like we've seen with so many people. Yeah, with so many crazies. Yes. And I think it's also people who have bad families, you know, or a bad troubled family situation. They're They're like looking. Mm hmm. Yeah. Martin's commanders and fellow recruits soon noticed his curious behavior. He was often insubordinate and got in trouble with his commanders. He spoke of hearing voices urging him to kill and seemed deeply disturbed. Oh, my God. Yeah. About two years into his service, Martin's commanders sent him for psychiatric testing. After a battery of tests and evaluations, psychiatrists deemed Martin a latent schizophrenic with other mental and psychological infirmities. In 1975, at the age of 19, Martin was discharged from the army due to his mental illness. He applied for and was granted financial benefits through the Veterans Benefits Administration and also through Social Security. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is that while he has a track record of being or having bipolar disorder, rather, some people suspect that he just learned everything he could about schizophrenia and was faking having schizophrenia to get out of the army with full benefits. Okay. Because the way like doctors would look at it later about his like history of behavior and it seemed like the schizophrenia only came up a couple times and it was when he wanted a like mental illness get out of jail free card. Yeah. And he was using like textbook diagnoses. Exactly. So there is a suspicion. We don't know for sure, but there's a suspicion that he was actually faking the schizophrenia. Around this time, Martin became obsessed with the LDS church and committed himself to it wholeheartedly. He even volunteered to go on a mission. Well, Mormon missions are, of course, a rite of passage and usually about two years long. Martin was sent home after a matter of months due to erratic and troubling behavior. It was determined that his mental health issues were too severe for mission work. And I don't know whether this was bipolar episode or his schizophrenia imagined or otherwise. Yep. Despite these challenges, Martin was determined to attend medical school and someday become a doctor. So he enrolled in St. Martin's University in Washington for undergrad, transferring 65 credits from the Army's extension program and graduating in two years with a degree in psychology and sociology. After finishing at St. Martin's, he moved to Mission Viejo to live with his sister, which is where he met lovely young Michelle at the Mormon Mixer. When he met her, however, he was on bail for a truly dizzying crime. Basically, right before he met Michelle, he had committed insanely egregious check fraud. He saw a 60 Minutes episode about check forgers and decided that he could do it better and get away with it. Spoiler alert, he could not and he did not. This fucking guy, he is something else. So he obtained a birth certificate using falsified records and then used the birth certificate to obtain a temporary driver's license and then used the license to open a checking account with a deposit of $50. Then over Labor Day weekend, because he knew the banks would be closed for the holiday weekend, in 1977, he went on a three-day shopping spree buying diamond rings, watches, 
furniture, a grandfather clock, a fridge, TVs, bicycles, an entire wardrobe of clothes, and most inexplicably, a year's supply of chocolate-covered cherries. What? I don't even know. Do you sign up for like a subscription service? <laughs> I got I got edible arrangements on lock. <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? Because is that like one a day? <laughs> they said you want a day. I don't know. You get like ninety a month or something. I don't know. Oh my god. <laughs> so by the time a store clerk finally became suspicious, Martin had passed thirty five thousand dollars in bad checks. Which, again, this is 1977, so I looked it up. That amount of money would be equivalent to $156,000 today. I was going to say, how did he even have time to do this over one weekend? I mean, I guess, and and you have to consider that things were on sale because it was Labor Day Labor Day. I mean, he must have been in a manic episode, right? Like, just going, like, balls to the wall, supermarket sweep. Oh, my God. So after being arrested, Martin pled insanity, but he was ruled competent to stand trial. Well out on bail, he met and wooed Michelle. So Michelle was totally swept away by him. Obviously, he didn't tell her at first about his criminal activity. <laughs> so she just thought, hey, that by he was- the way, I'm out on bail, but uh, you want to go grab a bite? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, she thought he was just like this tall, good looking guy who was going to go to medical school. She also was kind of naive when it came to relationships. Like I said, she was a really, really like good girl. She was still living with her mother. She hadn't had a lot, a ton of relationships. So she was kind of naive when it came to the other, like the opposite sex. I mean, she met him at her church mixer, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he came in like a wrecking ball. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of this. He was manipulative. He was forceful. He was magnetic. And she just kind of went with it. But he was pushing really hard for them to solidify their relationship, probably because he was about to go to jail. So he was trying to lock it down. And when she tried to pump the brakes a little bit, He ended up, they were in his car and she was like, I think we're moving a little fast. Like, let's just take it down a notch. He pulled a pistol out of the console of his car and put it up to his temple. And he was like, you can't leave me. I'm not going to live without you. I'm going to kill myself right here if you break up with me. Whoa. Yeah, which guys, huge red flag. We've talked about this before. If somebody threatens to commit suicide early in your relationship at any point in your relationship. Yeah. Especially every time you get into a fight or you like want to change the dynamics of your relationship. That is a a bad, 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 bad sign. Yeah. That's emotional abuse on top of him or her needing to be evaluated. (laughs) Yeah. And it worked. I mean, it worked. She kept dating him because she was worried for him. Yeah. And he definitely used like what he knew about psychiatry and also just about Michelle's heart for his advantage. Like she was a highly compassionate woman. So he would, you know, if she was pulling away at all, he'd bring up or like she fought about his behavior. He'd be like, well, I just don't know what love is because I had such a terrible upbringing and, you know, these things my mom did and my dad ran off and my parents were alcoholics and all of my brothers and sisters are screwed up. Like, So she would feel so badly for him that she would continue to go back to him. And then 
his dad passed away during this court early courtship phase. So he was like leaning on her more than ever. So he was just kept being able to reel her back in. And Michelle's mother, who at the point she was living with and her sisters all knew he was bad news. They had the worst gut feelings about him. They knew that this was trouble. They thought he was manipulative and controlling. So everyone was very shocked and disappointed to discover that the couple eloped in February of 1978 after only a few months of dating. Oh, no. I know. I know. In fact, how they found out is so terrible. Apparently, um, Michelle's mother, Helen, did not want her to move in with Martin for obvious reasons. Yeah. And so Martin just showed up at her house and started like moving Michelle's stuff out in boxes and was like, tough shit. I'm taking her shit. She's moving in with me, which was not like what a nice Mormon girl does. She didn't know at this point that they were already married. So the two got into a screaming match and the cops were called. And so before the cops could arrive, because he already had a record, he was like scoot and boot to get out of there, you know? Whoa. And he turned to her and he sneered at in her face, in her mother's face, you know what? You're too late. We're already married. And like laughed in her face. Oh my God. And that's how Helen found out that her daughter was married. Oh, that's horrible. It's so terrible. As someone who got secretly married and didn't tell her parents for eight months. Oh my gosh, it made me feel so bad. Luckily, both sets of our parents were extremely happy. And my parents also secretly eloped. So it was kind of a family tradition. Yeah. But yeah, that is not how you want to find out your kid got married. No. To make matters worse, she soon after saw a newspaper article about her brand new son-in-law and his forgery spending spree. So she ended up going down to the police station and looking up everything she could find out about his crimes. And she found in his record that he said when he was arrested that he heard voices and had homicidal urges. Whoa. Yeah. So she's like, homicidal urges are not what you want in the spouse of your baby daughter. No. No. And she even said to one of Michelle's sisters, I wouldn't be surprised if he kills her someday. Whoa. So eventually, in true abuser format, Martin managed to alienate Michelle from almost every member of her large and loving family. The only person that he let stick around, and maybe because she was the most determined to stay around, was her youngest sister, Linda. After four months of marriage, Martin was sentenced and served his six-month term in prison for the check forgery. Just one month after he was released, Michelle became pregnant and gave birth to their first daughter, Rachel, in 1979 when she was 22 years old. She's a baby. Wow. Over the next five years, the couple would go on to have three additional children. They had two more girls, Vanessa Marie in 1981 and Alexis Michelle in 1982, and then baby boy Damien Alexander in January of 1985. Meanwhile, Martin enrolled in medical school. He began his coursework at a Mexican medical school in Guadalajara, but transferred his credits to the College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific in Pomona, California. In 1983, Martin graduated and was licensed as an osteopathic surgeon in California. The family briefly moved to Flushing, New York for a residency program before settling in to Utah. Ever the overachiever, Martin even earned a law degree from Brigham Young University. 
Whoa. Which I don't know. He didn't ever practice. So I don't know if it was just because he knew he could. He just wanted to prove his intelligence or if he was planning to commit some more illegal activities and wanted to know his way around the law, you know? I was going to say, this is crazy. Did it say what kind it's of law? so crazy. No, it was just a basic law degree because he never practiced. So he didn't, he didn't go into a specialty. Weird. By all accounts, early childhood for the children was actually a happy affair. They were devout Mormons and Martin even served as a bishop at their church. They had happy holidays, warm and affectionate parents. Martin was doing really financially well, so they had everything could, they could ask for. Rachel shared her father's love of books and said she adored him growing up. She thought of her parents like, you know, getting married so fast and being so in love as having the ultimate love story. Alexis, who actually grew up to be a doctor herself, was totally inspired by Martin and considered him to be a role model, though she said that her mother, Michelle, was always the heart and like superhero of the family. Okay. She was the one that made everything work. Like they were impressed by their father. But he wasn't around as much as Michelle. She was the one that like made the family work and was there for all the kids no matter what, you know? Yep. The family was happy, healthy, and doing pretty darn good financially. In December of 1998, they moved to Orem, Utah and into an insane 11,000 square foot home with six bedrooms and eight bathrooms. Oh my God. That is huge. However, everyone said that they could tell there was an undercurrent that things weren't quite as perfect as they all acted like. In 2000, Martin became the medical services director for the Utah State Developmental Center, which provides care for 265 mentally disabled individuals. Colleagues there found Martin cruel and unskilled. This was their descriptions of him from the stranger she loved this just seems so crazy that this is the same guy that was faking potentially schizophrenia in the military same guy now he's a high achiever who's a bishop in his church and has four kids and multiple advanced degrees isn't it crazy yeah Martin was considered demanding and difficult. Coworkers described him as intimidating and a bully with profound lack of medical skills. Whoa. He terrorized vulnerable medical residents and his management tactics chased competent nurses and doctors away from the facility. Over the years, as Martin grew more successful and accomplished, his already engorged ego swelled. Associates and former friends describe him as a braggart and a brute who dominated every conversation. Whoa. In social situations, he was known to be openly condescending, contemptuous, and unapproachable. Michelle's friends were often fearful to call the house because of concerns that Martin might answer the phone. Whoa. Yeah. As Martin's children grew older, they realized that he was not a typical father. Embarrassed by his pompous outbursts, his daughters seemed to frequently be apologizing for their dad and making excuses for his moods. I was constantly trying to explain my father, Alexis said years later. He thought anyone that was not at his educational stature was very beneath him. He treated them very poorly. Well, Martin wasn't much better in his marriage. He was described as a dictator who dominated Michelle. The two began to have terrible screaming matches, especially regarding pornography, which Martin was very much into and Michelle regarded as the Mormon church does it a sin. 
Could you imagine having a screaming match about pornography? <laughs> no, no, I can't. I really cannot. I mean, I think, though, that's like also... <laughs> I was gonna say the way I was raised but I like there's no like family that's like pro pornography but I'm saying that I wasn't raised religious I wasn't told that it was a sin you know no yeah so I think this is very much a part of her identity and that they were having this like moral conversation about it which is really interesting you know yeah, so one of these blowout fights occurred and it was so bad. This was in August of 2000. Martin apparently picked up a butcher knife and As he was does. chasing Michelle around the house, threatening to kill her and then himself. It became so scary that 15-year-old Damien was forced to tackle his father and wrestle the knife out of his hands. Yeah. The police were called and Martin spent the night on a temporary hold in a mental health clinic. Still, Michelle took her husband back every single time. So she took him back, but who released him? I mean, I think that when you do like a temporary hold, it is temporary. It's like you have to stay here for like one night or three nights or whatever. And then they deem that you are. So they do evaluate him. Yeah. Okay. I mean, but also he's a really smart psychopath. So yeah. I think he can fake anything or fake wellness because he knows what they're looking for, for him yeah. to say, you know? Yeah. Well, unbeknownst to Michelle, porn was the least of her problems. Martin was a wild philanderer and was carrying on multiple affairs by this point. Even worse, he would use his position as a doctor to prey on his female patients. He always seemed to choose vulnerable partners as well, single mothers or recent divorcees. In 1998, Martin was forced to resign from Brigham Young Medical Center after he was discovered to not, after he was discovered that he had not only committed Medicare fraud, but he was also accused of gross sexual assault, misconduct, and even misdiagnoses. Huh. Yeah, that was like, it was like a whole laundry list of bad things that he did. And there was a couple times that he was forced to resign from positions. And after every time he was basically fired, he and Michelle would have terrible violent fights. By the time the kids were all in their teens and preteens, the once happy family was a seething kettle of anger, infidelity and violence. Wow, sounds like fun. Yeah, it definitely affected each child negatively. Rachel was diagnosed with bipolar and spent most of her young adulthood drifting across the United States. By her late 20s, she'd already been married and divorced twice. And then she finally like kind of moved back to Utah, became a dental hygienist and began to like rebuild her life. Vanessa suffered tremendous anxiety, and as a result, she would self-medicate and eventually uh, became addicted to drugs and alcohol. Whoa. In the summer of 2000, at the age of 18, Vanessa discovered she was pregnant, which again, being an unwed mother in the faith is not smiled upon. And she ended up giving birth to a healthy, adorable baby girl named Ada, on March 25th, 2001, Vanessa, though, struggled with her sobriety, so it was decided that Martin Michelle would adopt Ada and raise her as their own. Okay. Yeah. So youngest son, Damien, was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and he seemed to have a tougher time of it than his sister or father. Both Martin and Rachel were obviously very functional. Damien's depressions were debilitating. They were deep and long, and... 
you know, family members would also point to Martin exacerbating the problem. The two were extremely close and he struggled with his father being kind of like an idol to him, but also he witnessed all of that terrible behavior, like even wrestling the knife away, which you can imagine would be very conflicting for a young person who adores their parent. When all of the older kids were out of the home and little Ada was the only one left, Michelle and Martin decided to adopt three girls from Ukraine. What? Michelle's, yeah, which is crazy to me. Once I get these kids out of the house, I'm locking the door and they're never coming back. Yeah, you're done. You're launched. Fly. I'm kicking you out of the nest. I'll see you in five months. I'm turning your room into a fitness studio. Bye. So, yeah, it seemed like Michelle being a mother was so much a part of her identity. She felt like she had so much more love to give. And she also, Ada was so little that she wanted Ada have the experience that she had had with her sisters and that her older girls had had with each other, you know? Yeah. Plus she wanted to do a nice thing, which is adopt kids that need homes. So it's very Michelle. And then people said that basically they think Martin went along with it because he thought it would distract Michelle and then he could continue having affairs and doing God knows what. And while she was, you know, otherwise busy, you know? So in 2003, the family welcomed 13-year-old Noel, 12-year-old Giselle, and 10-year-old L. Unfortunately, Noel suffered from, I know they're all L's, isn't that yeah, funny? Yeah. Noel, Giselle, and L. And I think those, they didn't like rename the girls. Those were like I, the names I they came with. I would hope they didn't rename yeah. them those names. <laughs> that would be so cruel if you were like, you're 13 years old, but I'm changing your name now, you yeah. know? Welcome to America. Yeah. So unfortunately, Noel suffered from reactive attachment disorder, which I had not heard of, but it is apparently a rare but serious condition in which a child lacks any attachment with their caregivers at all. And her inability to connect with Michelle and Martin was so bad that it apparently resulted in the state rescinding the adoption and taking custody of Noel. Whoa. Yeah, and I I don't know if, you know, what causes that or if it's something spontaneous, but Noelle ended up growing up and having a good life. And it sounds like she must have formed some attachment to another caregiver um, because later on she did reconnect with some of the McNeil children via social media and it seemed like she was doing just fine. Okay, and so they're not related, the three girls from the Ukraine? No, so they were all different. They were not sisters. However... They ended up getting visited. L, the youngest, had a friend named Sabrina who they had been in an orphanage together. And Sabrina had been adopted by another family. Like she was eight. And I think the other family had a, like it was the sisters were eight and five. And so when she moved to her new family in the United States, apparently her foster mother like super favored the five-year-old and like didn't have time for older Sabrina. So Sabrina came to visit L because they had been best friends in the orphanage. And apparently the whole family fell in love with Sabrina and Sabrina begged to be adopted by them. And so Michelle reached out to Sabrina's adoptive mom and was like, Hey, we love Sabrina. Can we just take her? And I guess Sabrina's adoptive mom was like, yeah, take her, whatever. I don't care. So I know, which is so hard, but Sabrina was so happy. She said, 
being adopted by the McNeils was the best thing that ever happened to her. She said it was wonderful. She said my mom was just absolutely incredible. And that the adoption by the McNeils was actually everything she had dreamed of when she was in the orphanage. And when she heard she was getting adopted, this is what she wanted it to be. Oh, okay. So it was it was a very brief, happy ending for Sabrina here. But oldest adoptee, now oldest, because Noelle had been the oldest before, Giselle had a very different experience. She felt very isolated in this home. She felt singled out by Martin. And she even said that he would corner her and touch her inappropriately. What? Yeah. So um, she, Shanna Hogan doesn't get into the details of exactly what happened, but I know that Giselle said that he definitely preyed upon her and, and bad things happened to some extent. Gross. Disgusting. Disgusting. So it was not a happy home for her. And and she did say that she tried to broach the topic with Michelle, but she felt like it was very much brushed under the rug. So now that Michelle is busy with all of those kiddos, so there's four older siblings that are, you know, in school and beyond. And then there's the four youngest now. Marin embarks on two serious love affairs with two separate but Equally intense women. These are some interesting dating choices. The first of which kicked off in 2005 and was with a woman named Anna Osborne Walthall, who was a single mother in her early 40s. Then she was at the time going through a very bitter divorce. They met when Anna, who owned a laser hair removal clinic, hired Martin to be her medical director, and they kicked off a torrid affair pretty much right away. Gross. So the two had some truly bizarre pillow talk. So this is all according to author Shanna Hogan. Martin was more than willing to confide some very dark secrets in Anna. So this is our first taste of maybe what Martin's actually capable of. Martin told Anna of his lifelong struggles with homicidal urges At times, he said he surrendered to those demons. He said he tried to kill for the first time when he was only eight years old. Whoa. Anna later reported this all in court. So she's saying this like under oath here. It was 1964 and his mother Lillian had drunkenly passed out on the couch. Sorting through the cabinets, Martin gathered all the medication he could find. He grabbed a beer from the refrigerator and fed the pills into the can. Jostling his mother awake, he helped her raise her head and put the can to her lips. I helped her sit up and drink it, Martin told Anna. Then I watched as she stopped breathing. Whoa. Just as his mother's heart ceased beating, Martin's sister Mary came home and found Lillian unconscious. Mary called 911, ambulances arrived, and the paramedics revived her. Later, everyone, including Lillian herself, believed that she had tried to commit suicide. So he says he did this when he was eight years old. Wild. Wild. As Anna listened to the story, a chill ran down her spine. Later, did you regret trying to kill her? I regret there wasn't more medication in the house, he quipped. Wow. So I think he's just a psychopath. Yep. A baby, Mm -hmm. baby psychopath. Baby psycho over here. Years later, Martin said he murdered his older brother. 
Rufus Roy McNeil was a drug addict who wasn't suicidal, but cut his wrist for attention, Martin claimed. While Martin was visiting New Jersey, Rufus Roy called to say he had hurt himself and wanted to die. Martin went to their mother's place in Camden and found Rufus lying in the bathtub with superficial cuts on his wrists. Stooping next to the tub, Martin told Anna he dunked his brother's head underwater and held him there till he stopped struggling. Wow. Were you ever worried that you'd get caught, Anna asked? No, no one would ask me about it. Martin shook his head. It's not unusual for a cutter to drown because they lose enough blood that they don't have the strength to stay above water. Oh, aren't you so smart, you little shit? (laughs) He's such a shit. That's the greatest word for him. Dr. fucking poo-poo pellets over here. What a loser. He's such a a know-it-all, huh? And also... He's like bragging to her uh, like about this. Like I I think like Anna, it was nice that she came forward and she told the truth about all this stuff. But I think she was a little into it, to be honest. Well, yeah, Uh, she keeps sleeping with him after this. She keeps sleeping with him. And there was also, it comes up like during the trial that she'd also been sending letters to um, the son of Sam guy, like in prison. Uh, what's his name? David. Uh, Anna, what's you're his name? A yeah. cray cray. Yeah. So I think that mm, I'm glad she's like blowing the whistle on him, but she is like probably like egging him on, like tell me more about it, you know? She's like, that makes me so hot. Yes. As their dark sexual entanglement escalated, discussions of killing became more frequent. When Anna complained of her ex, Martin offered to murder him. He also mentioned a desire to kill his own daughter, Vanessa, because he said her drug use had become a family embarrassment. Yeah, she's inconvenient, right? Ugh. Well, he's like, I've already killed one person who had debilitating substance abuse in my family so why not go for two yeah she's a girl it'll be easier once during a violent sexual episode martin even proposed ending anna's life to put an end to her woes so he's like they're banging and he's like what if i just killed you would that be cool what she's like ah (laughs) she probably (laughs) liked it you're right (laughs) Anna also later testified that Martin said throughout his medical career, he had murdered several patients. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't put that one past him. Like Dr. Death wannabe. Exactly. He also worked for many years with a disabled community and, you know, people are terrible and, and don't treat marginalized communities the same way they do. If he was in a fancy private hospital treating rich white people you know Anna shockingly was not the one to leave Martin Martin eventually left her when he discovered a newer younger affair partner online a newer younger person who also loves murder oh yeah this this girl really takes the cake the one I'm about to tell you about her name is Gypsy Jill Willis you're lying No, I am not. I am not. I wish I was. And she is a whole bundle of fuck, this girl. Yeah, so she's 29 years old at the time they meet. She's a divorced nurse. Her screen name was Phoenix Sheba. And she claimed on her profile to have interests in astrology, sphinxes, and quantum physics. Wow. 
Yeah, and so Martin wrote to her and he's like, quantum physics, lol. Like, are you just trying to seem smart? And she's like, no, I just, I thirst for knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I'm telling you, she's not that much of a brain trust. This was not a genuine love of quantum physics. Seriously? I thought it was. (laughs) You're just lying now? (laughs) So uh, speaking of lying, Martin lied to Gypsy at first when they were talking online. He pretended to be a 39-year-old pharmaceutical sales rep named Joe. Well, that's okay Uh, because she's pretending to be named Gypsy. (laughs) Yes. Which um also, the, her name came from the fact that when she was like a little girl, apparently like they tied like a kerchief around her head as a baby and people were like, oh, she looks like a little gypsy, which I think is, isn't that kind of like racist to do <laughs> like actual gypsies? So yeah. So anyways, that's She's where the like name came from. Baby appropriating gypsies. <laughs> she is a baby gypsy appropriator. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of on her parents, though, because they kept it going. That's totally on her parents. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, but he did he did own up to it on the first date. So on the first date, well, it's kind of hard. He shows up. He's clearly a decade older. Like, and he's like, he's like, sorry, I'm not a pharmaceutical sales rep. I'm actually a murderer. <laughs> Ooh, what a fuck. <laughs> well, it's kind of like that. He's like, so lied about my age, lied about my profession, lied about having a wife, which I do. Lied about my name. Lied about my name. Want to bang? <laughs> you know, this is how every good relationship starts. Uh, so, so actually she was like really into it. Didn't care that he lied about all of this stuff. She found surprise, the whole, surprise. Uh, she found the whole affair thing exciting and their relationship turned very sexual, very fast. They would spend all day sexting and they would meet up in motels when they could for rendezvous. So at first they were both seeing other people. Martin was still seeing Anna at the beginning. But the passionate pair grew serious about one another. They became monogamous, I guess, as monogamous as you can be when one of you still has a spouse. (laughs) Monogamously cheating. Yes, they were affair partners who were exclusive in their devious acts, I guess. So it was around this time that he dumped Anna and he didn't tell her about Gypsy, of course. He just said that he was getting back together with his wife, which was a lie. And Anna was so upset about this that she actually sought out psychiatric care, telling her psychiatrist in January of 2006 that she had had an affair with a serial killer. Oh, my God. I mean, even more complicated is you're sad that the affair is over. I think that's the stuff you got to work out with your psychiatrist there, Anna. Gypsy, Martin's lover and new obsession is, she is a hot mess. She really, really is. I mean, she wasn't at first. Like something went awry in her life. Um, She was the oldest child of four born to a conservative Mormon family. Her father was actually a doctor and he worked his way through medical school while she was a child. So she witnessed his hard work and what he did for his family. And she was really inspired by that. So she actually got a vocational degree and she became a licensed practical nurse. Wait, sorry. Yeah. She became an LPN, a licensed practical nurse by the time she was only 17. Okay. So that's really cool. That's like, she's doing it, right? Yeah. But it seems like 
where the fracture came was with her family at some point because she did get pregnant and have a baby at 20 and her parents were very conservative. So they were not down with this. Um, and they pretty much forced her, or at least she says that they kind of forced her to marry the first guy that came along after that so that she would still be accepted in the church and in their lifestyle. Not smart. And she, it's hard. Yeah. So I think that this was like a betrayal in her mind of like them not accepting her and then forcing her to do something she didn't want to do. So she marries this guy. They do not shockingly make it. They make it to two years of marriage and get divorced. And at that point she moves back in with her parents, but she wants to move in with this boyfriend. She starts dating and they're like, you're not moving in with anyone without being married to them. And she's like, Oh, we've done this before. I'm not doing it again. I'm doing whatever the hell I want. And when she tried to move out, they were like, fine, but you have to leave the baby with us. And so at this point, she essentially gave up custody of her child to her parents. Wow. Yeah, she would later unsuccessfully try to sue them for custody, uh, but it didn't work. And then as time went by, she realized, she told this later to Shanna Hogan, that at some point the child was so attached to her parents that it would actually have been crueler to rip her away from the caregivers that she actually had yeah, at that point. Yeah. Freed of her responsibilities as a mother, Gypsy bounced around different nursing jobs in her 20s, not paying her taxes and sleeping with married men. Wow. So yeah, so she had even owned a house in Bountiful, Utah at some point, but she had to sell it in 2005 because she hadn't paid her taxes in over seven years. And the government came to collect with interest and she owed almost $50,000. And she's she's like, but quantum physics. <laughs> she later explained the debt. You're going to love this. By saying that she had, quote, unwisely protested paying taxes. Oh, my God. I hate people like this. I know you hate people like this so much. Guys, no one likes paying taxes. We all fucking hate paying taxes. But the fact that this little snowflake thinks that she's the specialist one in the world who who doesn't have to pay her taxes. Listen, I mean, Gypsy. You got to be a billionaire to not pay your taxes in this country, okay? <laughs> exactly. 100%. Not, not a hardworking nurse. You need to pay all your taxes. <laughs> Basically, that was what was going on with Gypsy financially as far as her dating life, according to Shanna Hogan. She said she had no interest in being a wife again and many times had affairs with married men, deciding it was their responsibility to be faithful to their spouses. Ew. Uh... Yeah. And, you know, in general, we talk about how, it. yes, it is the responsibility of the party that's in the relationship to not have an affair. But if you are going out of your way to find married men, then that's skeezy as hell. <gasps> oh, yeah. Wow. Like, what are you putting on your OkCupid profile? Married, please. It's I like, like dirtbags. Preferred married, but I guess if you're single, I'll consider it. <laughs> Are you in a relationship? Because that would be a real plus. <laughs> she said, I've been married. I've had a baby. I've been kind of traumatized by that whole experience. So let me just ruin yours. <laughs> I had a bad time. So I want everyone to have a bad time. By the time she met Martin, an affair with a handsome doctor seemed thrilling. 
I knew it wasn't going anywhere and that was fine. It was just fun and exciting, she recalled. I was just living my life and doing whatever I wanted to do. I came to realize later on that that wasn't the best attitude. It hurt people because inevitably they found out. Yeah, kind of like the IRS found out about you not paying taxes. You can't just do whatever you want in life. But quantum physics. But quantum physics. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I've gotten a lot saltier now that I'm a parent. It's like, there's a lot of things I don't want to do, (laughs) but I do them. (laughs) So despite their loosey-goosey intentions, the two did become embroiled in a fairly serious affair. And though Martin's other affairs had gotten pretty much unnoticed, Michelle began to suspect he was being unfaithful this time around. His attitude towards Michelle had changed. So previously with these other affairs, they seemed to be more about sex and power. Like he had control over these women. He could get sex out of them. He called the shots. He didn't have romantic feelings for them. And his wife was always number one, no matter what. He still wanted to keep her. He wanted to keep the image of them, you know? And around the time he started seeing Gypsy, he kind of changed that feeling. He started falling in love with Gypsy. He started seeing Gypsy as a replacement for Michelle. He started seeing his wife of nearly 30 years as disposable. And once he started feeling that way, he started treating her as such. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of hard to not. (laughs) Yeah. By the time he turned 50, Martin had become obsessed with appearing youthful by working out like crazy, eating healthy, and going tanning. I thought you were going to say early. getting Botox. I, I mean, I guess they probably had Botox in the early 2000s. Probably. I think they, they started probably having it. Yeah, he probably was doing that too. But it's really funny that like to look youthful in the early 2000s, you went tanning. Yeah. <laughs> Basically destroying your skin. So he did drop 30 pounds and he lorded it over Michelle, who had gained some weight due to her depression over her failing marriage. Wow, what a scumbag. Total scumbag. Despite his new commitment to health, Martin suffered a mysterious ailment in late 2006 when his big toe swelled grotesquely and became inflamed for weeks. Ew. Yeah, it eventually required three surgeries and he occasionally needed to use a cane. Martin melodramatically told his family and church community that he was dying and that he had cancer or MS or cancer and MS. Or an ingrown nail. Yeah, it's hard to keep straight because he was such a lying liar face. He also told a colleague that he had something called Charcot-Marie-Tooth syndrome and yet another nurse that it was a genetic problem. To Gypsy, he first explained it away as a broken toe that hadn't healed properly because she did say it was genuinely like humongous and swollen. But then he later told her it was a genetic nerve disorder. Whatever was going on with Martin only made him realize how fleeting life was and how much of it he wanted to spend with Gypsy. So he moved her into a duplex he owned and he covered all of her bills while she pursued an advanced nursing degree. Six weeks before Michelle's untimely death, Michelle confided in her daughter Alexis that she believed Martin was having an affair. Michelle was devastated when Martin booked a Mayo Clinic appointment, ostensibly to figure out what was going on with his toe, in Scottsdale, Arizona, on the same weekend as their 29th wedding anniversary. Wow. And he 
he also refused to let her come because she was like, well, you know, if we, if you have to go for your health, I'll just come with you, you know? Yeah, Scottsdale's not a bad place to spend an anniversary. No, it's super fun. There's a lot of like really, really nice places you can go hiking. Well, I guess he wouldn't go hiking with his toe. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really nice place with lots of nice restaurants and bars, you know? Instead, who was going to enjoy those nice restaurants and bars? Miss Quantum Physics over here. Uh, Miss Quantum Physics is 2006. So yeah, Gypsy and Martin drove to Nevada first. And so apparently Martin, I think, like owned Alexis's car, which was a convertible. And so he wanted to take the convertible for a ride with his mistress from Nevada to Scottsdale. So he told Alexis he was driving in by himself and then he wanted to switch out their cars so he could take the convertible to Arizona. By himself for a Mayo Clinic appointment. Yes. So she's like weird, but you know, think about your dad's an insane narcissist weirdo your whole life. You're like kind of used to him doing strange things, you know? Yeah. However, she was suspicious because her mother had already told her that she thought Martin was having an affair. So basically he's trying to cover up what he's doing by he drops Gypsy off first at a restaurant and then he goes to Alexis's, but Gypsy hadn't taken her luggage out of the trunk of the car. So Alexis goes down to move the luggage into the convertible. And she's like, I don't think that's my dad's luggage. And she opens it up and she finds lingerie and makeup and all the stuff that she knows is not her mother's. So she doesn't say a thing. She just like zips everything back up moves it over, goes upstairs like, bye, dad. And then as soon as he leaves, she calls her mom and she's like, oh yeah, he's cheating on you. He didn't have a person with him, but I saw some luggage in his trunk and he's got a shit ton of girl stuff in there. And I know it's not yours. So of course, Michelle's devastated and furious. And so she calls him and she's like, what the hell are you doing on our 29th wedding anniversary weekend? with some woman's shit in your trunk. Like, I know you're cheating on me. So he totally backpedaled. He tells her that the luggage belongs to a colleague of his who I guess he needed to bring her stuff to Scottsdale or something. He had some cockamamie excuse for why he had women's clothing in his car. And when she doesn't believe him, he's like, look, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go back to Alexis's and I'm going to spend the night with her because I want to prove to you that I'm not seeing anyone. So he makes arrangements for Gypsy to spend the night somewhere else. Wow. He goes back to Alexis's and he's like really angry with her first. Like, how dare you tell your mother that? And she's like unapologetic. And then he spends the whole night there trying to convince her that he's not sleeping with anyone. Okay. But of course, the next day he gets up and he's like, sorry, I got to go for my clinic appointment, but I just wanted to spend the night with you. So you didn't think I was sleeping with anyone else. And then he goes and picks Gypsy up and they go for their wonderful long weekend together after all of that. Psycho. Psycho. So a month later, Michelle and Alexis are now like fully detective level, like going through his stuff, trying to like figure out who he's having an affair with. And Alexis comes across something in his belongings. Like they're looking for like receipts or evidence, you know, and they come across a envelope from the Mayo Clinic that shares with him that he is distinctly not dying he did, in fact, have a rare genetic disease known as hereditary neuropathy, which is a huge bummer. It's like 
not fun, but it's easily treated. It can be treated through lifestyle changes. And he's absolutely 100% not dying. It's not fatal even remotely, you know? Okay. So he had been telling people in their life and at the church that... He was dying like within six months. Like oh I have cancer. I only have six months to live. He's like limping around with a cane. And they're so they're like, they find this envelope and they're like, what the hell is he doing? Why wouldn't he tell his family that he wasn't dying? Why wouldn't he share it with the church community that he doesn't have cancer? You know, eventually through some sneaky work on Alexis's part, they also get their hands on his cell phone bill and they end up identifying an unknown number that Martin seemed to call frequently, often as late as two or three in the morning. So Alexis called the number and a woman's voice answered and she kind of like freaked out. Like, I don't really want to like confront this person and have my dad know I know everything. Yep. So she hung up and conducted a reverse phone number lookup online that gave her the name of her father's mistress, Ms. Quantum Physics herself, Gypsy Jill Willis, which also sounds like like a wrestling name. Coming to the ring, Gypsy Jill Willis. You know, so bad. It's so bad. So. When confronted, because at this point, now that they know everything, Alexis and Michelle confront Martin. He claimed that Gypsy was just a nurse colleague who was renting the duplex. So she's just like somebody he met and she's a tenant. Uh And he claimed that he had to speak to her at night because she worked night shifts. And that was the only time she was awake and available. So Michelle was like, I don't really buy your bullshit and I'm going to forbid you from continuing to speak to her. And Martin uh, obviously agreed to Michelle's face, but he instead told Gypsy to only text him. Apparently at that point, texts weren't on the phone bills and only call his office from now on. He had absolutely no intention of breaking things off with his lover. So the day after the fight about Gypsy, Martin suggested that Michelle get a facelift. Can you imagine (laughs) you just found out your husband's potentially having an affair or definitely having an affair (laughs) with someone named Gypsy. And the next day he's like, you know what I think this marriage needs? You to get a new face. I want to take your face (laughs) off. Off. Oh, my God. Martin insisted that this would boost her confidence and help repair their marriage. Mm -hmm. He even said that after she was healed, they could take a romantic cruise together to reignite the spark in their marriage. After you, you know, fix your face and stuff. So Michelle was beautiful. She was very natural. She was always had been naturally good looking. She had never done anything like plastic surgery, had never had any interest in it. But at this point, she was desperate to win back her marriage. And she admitted to Alexis that she felt like Martin had been making a priority of his like health and body and youthfulness at this point. And she hadn't been as much. She had been raising eight children. Jeez Louise. Ugh, it makes me so sad that like the that religions put this pressure on marriage as opposed to putting pressure on you being happy and confident with yourself. I mean, I could definitely argue, though, that this is just also society and anybody who gets into a marriage at the age of like 20, 21. 
Yeah, which it ends up a lot of the times it ends up being because of religion, you know, because you can't have sex before you get married and you want to have sex because you're a raging teenager, you know, so people got young, married really young. It's just it's a bummer because it's like if she was able to like find some happiness on her own, you know, it wouldn't be like I have to do this to win back my husband. But I also I definitely yeah, I don't know. I think that there's there's something to be said for the fact that she never worked really other than professional modeling in her teens and very early 20s. And I remember like my parents have been married for 40 years, 41 years this year, and they are very happy. But my mom said she's like, honestly, if I had had a career, there might have been times I would have left your father because I knew I would have been fine. It was more like my mom never worked the entirety of their marriage. And she was like, in, in the end, it was a good thing for them because they belong together and it forced them to work through their issues. But it's, it's a bad position for women to be in to not have any sense of self or income or job, you know, I mean, I'm a stay at home mom, guys, we better make this uh, (laughs) podcast a success so I can leave my husband. Lol. Kidding, Nathaniel. Lol. Never. (laughs) Never. I wouldn't let you. Okay, we got sidetracked. But in any case, yes, she felt tremendous pressure, which is super duper sad to do this thing to please this terrible man. So at the consultation, Martin is domineering and pushes Michelle to the max procedure. That included a forehead lift, a mid face lift, a lower face lift, and upper and lower eyelid surgeries. Whoa. That seems like too much work at one time. It seems like a lot. Yeah. So yeah, Alexis was not happy about this situation. She obviously felt like her mother was beautiful and she also felt like her mother was doing this for her father. But Michelle seemed pretty resigned to doing it and even was like, you know what? This might get us back in line and she wanted to do it. So Alexis is like, fine, but. I'm going to take off school or work at that point, And I'm going to come and stay with you guys so I can take care of you, you know? Okay. Two red flags go up during the pre-surgery period. Number one, Michelle's primary care doctor says that she has high blood pressure and that she should resolve the issue before having major surgery. But Martin overrides it, telling Michelle it's not an issue because, you know, he's a doctor and he knows better. And he demands that she go through with it. And then second, in the pre-surgery appointment, Martin requests much stronger pain medication than the plastic surgeon usually prescribes and a lot more of it. He also claims that Michelle suffers from anxiety and demands the surgeon also prescribe Valium. So usually the plastic surgeon would say, F right off, you know, you'll take what I give you. But Martin is very demanding, very convincing, a doctor himself, and he promises that he'll be monitoring her drug intake. So he's like, no, I'm a medical professional. I'm going to be with her every day. I'm going to be making sure she takes the right dose. Like, you don't have to worry about this. Is that still, like, ethical, though? I don't know if that's, if you know it's not the right amount. I mean, I guess it was, like, a professional courtesy, you know? So he prescribes the Percocets and the Valium not usually in the normal regimen to, I mean, his great mistake, obviously. 
So Alexis comes to stay and help her mother. And she says that the night before the surgery, Michelle and Martin actually fought about delaying it. Michelle wanted to reschedule it for three months time. She figured that in three months, she could lose some more weight and get her blood pressure down. Yeah. Martin argued that he had already paid for the anesthesiologist and the surgery suite. And that if she didn't do it now, they were never going to do it. And he was going to like cancel the cruise that they were supposed to go on. Wow. Yes. So, of course, Martin got his way and Michelle went under the knife on April 3rd, 2007. Immediately, Alexis notices that her father is being weird after the surgery. First of all, even though the surgery went well, Michelle was a little sluggish coming out of the anesthesia. And the surgeon recommended that she stay the night in the hospital to remain under observation. And Martin actually had the balls to try to fight the surgeon on this. He was like, nope, she's coming home. We, this was supposed to be outpatient. I'm not, I'm not going to have her stay in the hospital. She needs to be back in her own bed. And the surgeon and Alexis both put their feet down and they're like, uh, what the hell are you talking about, dude? She needs to be in the hospital right now. She's yeah, not, not going home. not a good luck for you, dude. Yep. And eventually when she did come home, Alexis was like, I'll just sleep like dad, you sleep like on the couch. I'll sleep in the bedroom with mom so I can be there for her. And he was like, no, I'm a doctor. I can give her the medicine. She's my wife. This is my bedroom. Like you're crazy. Get out of here. So she like Alexis's like radar was up. She like knew something wasn't right about this whole situation. So she did go away and slept somewhere else, not in the same room as Michelle that night. But when she got up at 6 a.m., she went straight to her mother's side and she said that her mother was completely passed out and unable to be roused. She had been so over-medicated that there was nothing she could do to like wake her mother up. And it was like scaring the shit out of her, obviously. Yeah, it ended up like she finally like kind of roused her, but she was not coherent at all. Like she was like alive, but not coherent and was clearly not with it. It ended up taking hours and hours and hours for anything like resembling like her being aware to happen like this was from 6 a.m to like 6 p.m all day before Michelle could really fully explain what had happened to her daughter so this account is from the stranger she loved when Alexis told her how long she had been sedated Michelle was alarmed Lexi, I don't know why, Michelle said woozily, but your dad kept giving me medications. He kept giving me things, telling me to swallow. The pills made her nauseous, but even after she had vomited, Martin had given her more drugs and made her take sips of the liquid lore tab. He just kept handing me things, Michelle cried. Even after I started to throw up, he just kept giving me stuff. Michelle told her daughter that she had protested. I said, I don't need this. He said, yes, you need this. Fearful that her husband was intentionally trying to over-medicate her for some reason, Michelle said she didn't want to be left in Martin's care alone. What happened? So she also said that she was like, if anything does happen to me, I really want to make sure, like, you need to make sure it wasn't your father. So Alexis, of course, like watched her mother like a hawk for the entire like next 10 days. So she stayed with her. She was with her 24-7. She took her to all of her appointments. And on Tuesday, April 10th, 2007, she went to one of her like, not last appointments, but like one of like your pretty good plastic surgery appointments. Okay. And at that point, she was healing really, really well. And she was down to one Percocet a day 
and that's it. That's all she was taking for the pain. Okay. So at that point, Alexis is like, it's been like, man, it's crazy that it's that painful. I never really think about how painful plastic surgery is because you you just think it's a vanity thing. But it's like, you have to be like medicated for a while, huh? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, I cut my hand up. Remember in that bar, yep. guys? Yep. Was, like I was sitting on a sink at a bar like an idiot. The sink fell off the wall, crashed to the floor and the porcelain cut my hand open really deeply. Yeah, that was bad. It was so bad. I needed like eight stitches inside in the tissue and then like 30 additional stitches to close it up. And it was so painful. It was so, I had to have like not a ton of pain medication because I was a big girl and I did it to myself. But I remember like actually feeling like I needed painkillers for the first time in my life. I had never broken a bone or anything. So I didn't know what pain felt like. I imagine, think about all the places they had to cut and everything they lifted and they're lifting muscle and they probably sucked out some things while they're in there, you know? So scary. I don't know if I could ever do it. No, I don't know. I say, I say I could never do it, but like talk to me when I'm 60 <laughs> and my vanity gets the best of me, but I'm hoping just, you know, a little Botox and I'll, uh, I'll be fine, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that obviously Alexis was concerned, but her mother is now up with it, walking around, taking one pain pill a day total. So at this point, she's like, okay, I got to get back to my life, you know, and her mother seemed fine, told her she was fine at this point. So they took her out to dinner that night, and then they put her on a plane to go back to Nevada. She ended up arriving back at home at 8 p.m., and she called her mother to tell her she had gotten home safe. Little did Alexis know that in a matter of hours, her mother would be dead. That's so fucked. The next morning after she left. So we're back at the beginning at Wednesday, April 11th. And Martin claims he dropped off the girl at their schools at 8 and 8.30. And then after 9 a.m., he showed up at work at some point. At 8.44 a.m., Alexis spoke with her mother on the phone. And she said that Michelle was upbeat and in good spirits. She told Alexis that she was planning on picking Ada up from school at 11.30 in the morning and taking her to McDonald's for a special lunch. Michelle told Alexis that Martin was being exceptionally nice to her and he was taking such good care of her. So Alexis is relieved at this point because she's like, my mom sounds great. Sounds like my dad's not being a total dickbag. This is all good news. From his office, Martin called Gypsy around 9.30 a.m., like in 9.26 to be exact. And from 9.30 to 11 a.m., Martin completely disappeared. He was not seen at work, nor did he make any calls. So for 90 minutes, Martin is in the wind. We don't know what he was doing during this 90-minute period. Okay. Just before 11 a.m., Martin was on his way to a safety fair where his department was being honored. He stopped at HR to demand that someone take his photo at the awards ceremony. He was rude and pushy while receiving the award, saying he needed to go to pick up his daughter and making sure that several photos were taken of him. He was very particular about this. Apparently, the ceremony was supposed to happen at a different time. And he had called that morning, rearranged everything, saying it needed to be on his schedule and it needed to happen at exactly this time. Then he went to HR and was like, I need somebody with a camera to come take pictures. And also when the person came to take pictures, he's like, are you sure I'm in it? Can you take it again? Take oh several God. more. So he is 100% establishing an alibi at this point. Yeah. 
Yeah. At 11.35, he picked up Ada and he was about five minutes late. So she was surprised to see her father there because she was told that her mother was picking her up. They had discussed it. And she was really excited to go to McDonald's, which was a super special treat for her. And when she asked her dad if he was taking her to McDonald's instead, Martin coldly like shut her down. He's like, no, we have to go home and like immediately drove her home when that hadn't been her original plan. So when they got in, he told her that her mother was in the house. And so she like ran in the door and she's like, mommy, mommy, she's six years old. And she ended up being the one that discovered her mother in the bathtub. So of course she didn't quite understand what was going on. The tub was murky and like kind of had this brownish water. Her mother was glassy eyed. Her eyes were open and staring at her. So she ran through the house to find her father at this point, And he sent her next door for help, which is where Christy Daniels comes in the neighbor and the scene from the very beginning of the podcast. Yeah. So Martin's behavior was so bizarre, aggressive, and angry that the 911 call he placed would later be used for training purposes. Oh my God. That's embarrassing. Uh Uh-huh. It's so embarrassing. They were like, yeah, we're going to have to use this one about how you interact with somebody that this is this irate and abusive. The dispatcher would later say he was just screaming at me. I've taken a lot of calls, but I've never had one where someone was just screaming at me like that. Wow. When Alexis was notified that her mother was en route to the hospital and not expected to survive, she threw down the phone and screamed, he killed her. He killed her. She said later, I just knew right away that he had done it. My mother had told me that if anything happened to her to make sure it wasn't my father and I knew it was him. Linda, Michelle's sister and closest friend, had the same reaction. While Alexis immediately went to the airport to come home, son Damien and his girlfriend Eileen went to the family home to comfort Martin. Martin made a very bizarre request at this point. He asked Eileen to get Michelle's prescription medications so he could review what pills she had been taking in front of a witness. Oh my God. After inventorying the pills, like, so he apparently wrote down how many pills were left in every bottle. He then requested that Eileen and Damien flush the pills down the toilet because he said he could not bear to look at them. So Eileen, who was just this guy's son's girlfriend, was like, he just lost his wife. I was so confused and I wanted to help him. So she did it. Oh, my God. While awaiting autopsy results, Martin moves forward to the funeral for Michelle, where he bans every member of Michelle's family from coming except for Linda. One mourner who was invited, however, was Gypsy Jill Willis, who had the audacity to attend her lover's wife's funeral. Wow. Why did he even invite her? I have no idea. I mean, that is so it- weird. She said later she wanted to support him because she loved him, but records show that she spent the funeral texting him and reminding him and maybe even sending some sex. Like she sent some images. Oh my God. Diabolical. Go back to your sphinxes. Go back to your sphinxes and your quantum physics, lady. Even 
even worse, within only a week or two of Michelle's death, Martin convinced the older children that he needed to hire a nanny to care for the four youngest girls. Now, obviously, he needs care, but Rachel, Vanessa, and Alexis had all offered to move back into the home and help raise their sisters. So they're dumbfounded why Martin is insisting that they have to hire an outside person when they're like, literally, the three of us will like move next door, we'll figure something out. We want to raise our own sisters, you know? Well, guess who Martin wanted to hire? Gypsy. Of course. Bingo. Oh my God. He wants to hire his mistress to be his children's nanny. And he even sets up this bizarre scenario in front of Rachel where they were at a Mormon temple and he set it up so that Gypsy would walk by and they would strike up a conversation and it would just turn out that she was a nursing student who also happened to be a nanny. And he'd be like, wow, that's so great. I can't believe we ran into you. What a godsend at the temple, no less. Oh my God. And so he introduces her as Jillian, obviously, because Alexis knew the name Gypsy. So... Jillian is now hired despite the older sister's protests. And within weeks of his wife's death, Martin has moved his mistress into the house. Wow. Yeah. Once in Gypsy, a.k.a. Jillian, doesn't even try to be a nanny. She doesn't watch the kids. She doesn't clean. She doesn't cook. Sabrina would later testify that you know what she does do. (laughs) Oh, she she bangs. <laughs> she, has, she has some different skills she brings to under the table. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And everybody noticed it. Yeah, Sabrina said she would testify later. She was like, in the the entire months long time she was in our house, she made spaghetti one time. She never watched us. There was there was no nannying going on. In fact, the older sisters were horrified when Rachel went over there one time and found her six-year-old sister, Ada, alone in the street, like alone oh outside God. in the street with nobody watching her. So at that point, Rachel and Alexis would trade off responsibilities taking care of the girls, even though their dad was supposedly paying a nanny to do it. I can't pay a nanny for something else to do it. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. So the autopsy results come back and they're kind of inconclusive. Michelle had Percocet, Valium, Phenergan, which is an anti-nausea medicine. Apologies for my pronunciation. And Ambien in her body. Whoa. But this particular medical examiner said that though that's a lot, none of the doses seemed particularly fatal. So they didn't think it was a woman. She didn't think that that was the cause of her death. But it's later noted that the medical examiner did believe she took the pills within one hour of her death. So why would she take it Ambien if she was taking it at like, you know, 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, right? And it wasn't drowning. Well, there was also the fact that her lungs weighed more, which could represent drowning, but it could also not. And the medical examiner didn't actually have all the information because for some reason there wasn't a report about all of the water she had expelled when they had done CPR. Yeah, I remember you saying that. 
Yeah. So basically later on, investigators are going to say that the medical examiner didn't have all of the right information. And actually by the time that they go to really look into this, the medical examiner had passed away. So at this point, she also notices that her heart is enlarged which can demonstrate that she has inflammation of the heart, a condition called myocarditis. So in a large heart like this is often the result of high blood pressure, which we know Michelle had, and certain drugs can exacerbate the condition. So ultimately, with all of these things considered, on May 22nd, 2007, the medical examiner ruled that Michelle's death was the result of natural cardiovascular disease. Yeah, so she believed that the myocarditis led to an unexpected arrhythmia and then sudden death. So she rules it not a homicide. Whoa. So Alexis and Linda are livid, as well as the other sisters. And they are like following up with the police being like, hey, you need to do another report. You need to figure something else out. And you'll keep looking into this, right? And they're like, no, sorry. No homicide means no crime. It's natural causes. Whoa, that's trippy. Oh, well, are you ready for the gross cherry on the top of the fuckface Sunday that is Martin McNeil? Are you ready? So six weeks after Michelle's murder, Alexis was staying in the home to clean out her mother's closet and take care of the girls. Because the house was full of people... When she stayed over, she would stay in the master bedroom. So basically, it was kind of one of those master bedrooms that has like a sitting room and a master bath and a bedroom. So they're okay. like, it's like a kind of like a master suite, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when she would sleep over, Martin would sleep on the couch in the sitting room and she would sleep in the bedroom, in the bed. Okay. So one night she's like, She ends up like working all night, cleaning out her mom's closet. She falls asleep around like 11 on the bed wearing her clothes. Well, she woke up to her father sexually assaulting her. What? Yep. She said that a few hours after she fell asleep, she awoke to the sensation of fingertips sliding inside of her jeans fondling her butt and then a man's lips glided against her left hand a hot tongue wetting her palm oh so her eyes shot open she slapped the hand away and then she saw that it was her father who had been assaulting her oh my god what a sick fuck I could feel my father's hands rubbing my buttocks, Alexis later testified. He had one of my hands, my left hand, and he was licking and kissing it. Springing from the bed. I know this is horrifying. Alexis shrieked, what are you doing? Alexis said Martin recoiled and apologized. Oh, I'm sorry, he said. I thought you were your mother. Six weeks after you killed her, you think your daughter is your wife? What? repulsed you're crazy either way oh my god so repulsed alexis bolted from the bedroom and spent the rest of the night in another room trying to erase the sickening thoughts from her mind oh my god how can you even stay there oh my well because she's worried about the little girls you know so Mm -hmm. she confronted him the next day and he's like whatever i was asleep i thought you were michelle 
And later that same day, Alexis told Rachel what happened. And Rachel was like, you need to go to the police. Yeah. But Alexis was worried that if she pressed charges, that he would bar her from seeing the little girls and then he could do something to them, you know? Yeah. So she was like, I have to be tactical here. I can't press charges right away or he's going to make it so I can't see my little sisters. So later, Martin called a family meeting where he admitted he had reached out and touched Alexis inappropriately. He declared that Giselle, L, Sabrina and Ada would no longer be allowed in his bedroom for fear that he might accidentally touch them in the middle of the night. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? Well, that's not a normal thing. Like, my children can sleep in my bed and I'm not worried that I might accidentally touch them inappropriately in the night. That is beyond fucked. Yes. What if it had been one of the young girls, Martin said, sounding concerned. I could have gotten in trouble. Uh, you could have gotten in trouble? How about you could have scarred your children for life? Oh my God, he's such a piece of shit. Yes. So now, of course, Alexa is worried about the younger girls and that Martin would sexually abuse them. I was very concerned for my younger sister, she said. There were a lot of things I was concerned about going on in the home. This was just another horrible thing to worry about. So Alexa stayed like sleeping at the house every once in a while, but now she did not sleep in the bedroom, obviously. And so Gypsy started like sneaking up into his room where he would sneak into the basement where she was living. Oh my God. Yeah. So despite Alexis's best intentions to keep things chill with her dad so she could come up with a strategy to get the girls out of the house, eventually it became very obvious that he was having an affair with the so-called nanny. And Alexis sided with her sister, Rachel, when they were having a blow up fight about this inappropriate relationship he was having. And he told them in no uncertain terms in June that if it was down to them or the nanny Jillian, he was choosing the nanny and they could fuck right off. And he stopped talking to or allowing the older girls to come by the house. Oh, this is such a disaster situation. Can you even imagine being like Alexis or Rachel in this situation? No. No. So basically at this point, Alexis is like, I have to pretend I like him to like get back in his good graces to figure out what's going on. And he is going full tilt into a serious relationship with Gypsy In fact, on June 26, only a couple months after Michelle's death, Martin bought Gypsy a 4.5 carat engagement ring for $7,000. He only got her a $7,000 engagement ring? He bought it on (laughs) bids.com. My God, he's such a cheap ass. (laughs) I know, actually, 4.5 carats for $7,000 is pretty good. Oh my God. So yeah, so he bought this ring online on like some online bid situation. And he then took Gypsy to Wyoming and proposed to her in front of her parents. Wow. Yeah. And so at this point, they did know that he was a widower who had children, but they had no idea how recently he had been widowed and they had no idea that their daughter had been having an extramarital affair with this guy. So 
they were actually kind of jazzed that she brought this great guy home who wanted to marry her because he was a doctor. He was a Mormon. He was a bishop in the Mormon church. And they were like, wow, you know, our black sheep of the family finally found this great guy and she's settling down and she's going to be like a great like stepmom to his children. So they were at first like completely snowed by the whole situation. But the only thing that later, because like later Gypsy's parents like want nothing to do with her. They think she's a psychopath. But the only thing that was kind of a red flag was that the mother was talking to Martin and he was telling her how much he loved their daughter. And she was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I love her like so much more than I ever loved Michelle. And the mother was like, whoa, that was your wife of like nearly 30 years. You raised eight children with her. I mean let's not go crazy here, you know? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I didn't really ever love her. Like, especially not the way I love Gypsy. And the mother was like, um, okay. And But she clearly was like thinking this was weird. And he's like, I mean, I loved Michelle, but it was more like, you know, how I would love a sister. Oh my God. So weird, dude. And so Gypsy's mom was like, yeah, that was really weird. I should have known something was up. So Martin and Gypsy get a marriage license on July 20th. But after Gypsy confesses to Martin that she has all of these huge debts, he's like, yeah, I can't marry you. I'm not going to pay your IRS bill. Like, we're not going to do this. But I still want you to be my wife. So we are going to figure out a nefarious way for you to get out of all of your debts and still be my wife. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. So he has a diabolical plan. First, he sends adopted daughter Giselle to Ukraine to visit family members and instructs Alexis, who apparently was dropping Giselle off, to bring back Giselle's passport for, quote, safekeeping. So now Alexis does keep Giselle's passport, but she wisely does, does not Giselle return it to Martin. travel? But that's like, that's what I don't know. I don't know why they don't really get, Shannon Hogan doesn't really get into why this was at all. Even Alexis thought this was a good idea to take Giselle's passport. I don't know. Also, maybe she had two. Is it possible that she had dual citizenship? You know, she took her American passport. That's all I know. So she took her American passport. And then at some point, Alexis and Martin aren't really speaking to each other. So Alexis does not return the passport to Martin. I don't think she would have anyway. Um, but he must have had enough other paperwork on Giselle because he ends up stealing his teenage daughter's identity and giving it to his mistress. Yup. Martin altered Giselle's birth certificate to name Gypsy now Jillian Giselle McNeil, wife of Martin McNeil, and aged the birth date up by 20 years. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Gypsy's new birth date was March 13th, 1971, making her five years older than her actual age. With the fake birth certificate, Martin took Gypsy to apply for a new social security card under the name Jillian, essentially creating two separate individuals with the same social security number. In the fall of 2007, Gypsy obtained a new Utah ID card. By moving forward with a new identity, they were able to wipe away her tax debts. So what happened to Gypsy then? She just like vanishes? You mean Giselle or Gypsy herself? I guess she's just Gypsy as the persona is just gone. And Giselle's stuck in the Ukraine. 
Okay. So then, according to Shanna Hogan, Martin accompanied Gypsy to the U.S. military offices to obtain a military identification card, which she was eligible for as the wife of an army veteran. On the application, Gypsy stated her name as Jillian G. McNeil. The military ID allowed Jillian access to military bases and gave her the ability to open bank accounts. In a deplorable twist, when Martin and Jillian filled out the application for the ID, they listed their supposed wedding date as April 14th, 2007, the day Michelle was buried. Oh my God. Through each move of this elaborate scheme, Gypsy knew what they were doing was illegal, but she claimed Martin was so persuasive, he convinced her to take part in the scam, telling her it would be mutually beneficial. This was Martin's idea. This was Martin's activity. I didn't want to do it. I told him I didn't want to do it, Gypsy later said. Yeah, right. He said this was the best way to do it. It's temporary. It's not going to hurt anybody. No one will notice. Meanwhile, like I said, poor Giselle is stuck in Ukraine with no passport, a stolen identity, and no way to get home. Fortunately, Linda and her daughter Jill had managed to track Giselle down after she had been in Ukraine for months, and they ultimately bring her home. Whoa. Basically, as soon as they find Giselle, she is like crying on the phone, being like, I have been trying to reach him. She'd been trying to call her father to be like, can you send me a plane ticket? Can you send me some money at least? And he had been totally ghosting his daughter, his under 18 daughter. Wow. Without notifying Martin, Linda secretly purchased a plane ticket and sent Jill to Ukraine to bring Giselle back. Before leaving, Jill also obtained Giselle's passport from Alexis. After arriving in Ukraine, Jill saw the conditions in which Giselle had been living and was appalled. I've never seen anything that horrible, Jill later said. Giselle flew back to Utah with her cousin. Once she had returned, Linda decided to adopt the teenager. In a bid to obtain guardianship of Giselle, Linda filed a protective order against Martin, paying for an attorney at her own expense. But despite having deserted his adopted daughter for the next few months, Due to the legal battle, Giselle had to spend months in foster care before returning to Linda's home. Oh, my God. I mean, how traumatic is this experience for that girl? Yeah. Meanwhile, Alexis also fought and eventually won custody of Sabrina, Elle, and Ada. Yay! Great. Yeah, so she had been fighting for custody for a while, and she essentially told her father that she would tell the police about the sexual assault and force them to reopen the murder case. Okay. And he was like, you know what? I don't need my kids. You could have them, essentially. But, of course, she, like, as soon as she knew the kids were safe and they were with her in Nevada, she's like, <laughs> fuck you, Dad. I am going to charge you with sexual assault. I am going to sue you to get the family home. And I'm also going to tell your work about everything you did so you lose your job. <laughs> so she went, am. Awesome. In fact, she got him on the phone and she recorded it where he admitted to putting his hands down his daughter's pants saying, I'm still a sexual person. I have desires that need to be met, Alexis. From your daughter? Yeah. Isn't that mind-blowing? Whoa. 
It's beyond disgusting. So, of course, they're going forward with charging him because he's clearly a dirtbag and she caught him on tape saying that. And they did end up actually getting him fired as well. And finally, in July of 2008, more than a year since Michelle's murder, they get a new investigator named Doug Whitney assigned to the case. So Douglas installed the 911 tapes and he reads the report and he's like, oh yeah, this guy was totally pretending. The overdramatics, the anger, the cursing of God. It's so clearly an act. Plus little details stuck out to the investigator like, the fact that the bathroom was cleaned before emergency services came. So that's like if he was supposedly performing CPR this whole time or trying to get out her out of the bathtub, why would the bathroom be clean? Yeah. Also, everyone reported that there was mucus all over Michelle's face. So if he had been doing CPR, it should have been on his face as well, you know? Yep. And it was not. Also, his report of where her body was was incorrect based on the lividity. The lividity suggested that she had died on her back when he suggested he found her like kind of floating on top of the bath and like draped over it, essentially. Okay. So they're digging into all this and they're like, he's a liar. Let's see what else he lies about. And they find out that first of all, he's been scamming veterans and social security benefits for decades. This guy makes an incredible living. Yeah. Yeah. As a doctor. And he has pulled in over a hundred grand of veterans benefits. Wow. Saying that he was like out of work because of his mental illness. Wow. Yep. They also find out that he falsified transcripts for his undergraduate, medical, and law degrees. He completely added classes he never took and classes that he did take, he falsified all the grades. Whoa. Yep. So his entire career had been built on lies. So when daughter Rachel discovers all of these lies, she launches a blog to try to dig up more dirt on the once esteemed doctor. And people write in with some horrifying stories. Patients write in and report that he propositions them. And there's even a man who says that he witnessed Martin raping a woman. Whoa. So eventually Doug and the other investigators unveil unveil the identity theft and they're like oh sweet this is something we can nail martin for because basically they were at a a a standstill because the medical examiner's report said it wasn't a homicide you know so overcoming that barrier was really difficult but when they have the identity theft which is a federal crime in front of them yeah they can move forward with getting them into jail and then figuring out the next steps yep So Gypsy and Martin were both charged and eventually sentenced with several felony counts related to the identity theft. (laughs) So it took like they had a million appeals and it took about three years for justice to occur. But both of them go behind bars and Gypsy ends up um, in prison for about 21 months while Martin is sentenced to 48 months. So like four years and his medical license is revoked. Son Damien had been the sole child to support his father throughout the fraud charges and the toll of his mother's death and his father's deceit weighed heavy on him. While attending law school at NYU, Damien fell into a deep depression. The day after Michelle's birthday on January 16th, 2010, Damien took a handful of prescription pills, placed a plastic bag over his head and killed himself. Oh my God, Jesse. 
I know he had only been two weeks shy of his 25th birthday. Okay, that's so sad. It's really sad. Basically, his sisters and his Aunt Linda think that he might have known something about what his father did and he couldn't handle it. Yeah. Or he suspected and he couldn't handle it, but it was definitely due to his relationship and his <sighs> father's bad acts. Oh, he was a gorgeous boy too. And he was really, really smart. It's so sad. Well, in prison, Martin remained obsessed with Gypsy. Though the two were barred from communicating, they managed to smuggle love letters to each other through a third party. Sick. Martin wrote romantic missives about how he had loved her since their first meeting and how he had dreamed of the future they would have together when they were released. Gypsy, for her part, had been dating another man shortly before her incarceration. She did write back equally like hot and loving letters, but she would later say that she wasn't continuing the relationship. She was just lonely in jail and wanted to receive letters. She was over it because he was married to her now. <laughs> she was also over it because she's like, all of my choices led me to this experience that is I'm finding very distasteful being in jail, but I'm going to blame it on you and say it's because of everything you did, not my own choices. I mistakenly did identity fraud. <laughs> Oops, it was because of you. You made me. So while these two idiots are writing love letters, investigators were still trying to garner enough evidence to charge Martin with his wife's murder. In early 2010, two forensic toxicologists examined Michelle's autopsy results and amended the cause of death to the cocktail of drugs Michelle had been on. The interactions with each other and the fact that Michelle had taken a sleep aid in the mid-morning seemed to indicate some sort of foul play, you know? Yeah. They're like, this is iffy. A famous forensic pathologist and toxicologist named Dr. Perper alleged on the Nancy Grace show that Michelle had been drowned. So the EMTs had reported that, that when they performed CPR, Michelle had expelled water from her lungs and her stomach. Yep. Dr. Perper pointed out that when someone is being drowned, they ingest water, breathing and swallowing so it enters both the lungs and the stomach. He also contended that if Martin had indeed performed CPR properly as a doctor should have known how to do, the water shouldn't have continued to be present. It should have been gone with Martin doing the CPR, not waiting until yep. the police officers did it. Yep. The investigators now believed that they had enough to go on and with the help of a few jailhouse snitches, their case was made. The first of the jailhouse snitches was, of course, Gypsy herself, who agreed to testify against Martin in exchange for an early release. Oh, my God. Of course she did. Uh-huh. When she got out, Gypsy took possession of a BMW convertible that Martin had promised to give her and then cold-bloodedly never spoke to him again. Of course. That's like, Bye. so, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> who she is. <laughs> exactly. So Gypsy had lost her nursing license, had lost her friends and her family, and was having a hard time finding a job, all of which, again, she blamed on Martin. So she's like, yeah, I deserve this BMW and screw you, dude. I don't care. I'm going to testify against you. On Friday, July 6, 2012, Martin was released from prison and returned to the empty family house where he had killed his wife. But he wasn't free for very long. On August 24th of the same year, so, like, I don't know, was that like six weeks? Dr. Martin McNeil was charged with murdering his wife as well as obstruction of justice for flushing down the pills afterwards, thus destroying evidence. 
Oh, my God. Trial began on October 17th, 2013, with the defense arguing that Michelle's death was accidental and of natural causes as the original medical examiner's report indicated. The prosecution argued that Martin pumped Michelle full of drugs and drowned her during the 90-minute window he could not account for on the day of Michelle's death. Martin's daughters testified against him, as well as the neighbor who assisted Martin and remarked that he did not have mucus on his face, which would have been there had he actually performed CPR. <laughs> simple. The it pro- seems pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. The prosecution further contended that Martin had faked having cancer or MS, so he would have a reason for being weak and unable to lift his wife out of the bathtub. Both mistresses, Anna and Gypsy, testified against Martin, as did four inmates who served time with Martin in prison. So first of all, going back to Gypsy for a second, she was like a huge bitch on the stand. Like she was not actually like testifying against him in a, a like way like she wanted to get back at him. She was actually a very resistant and frustrating witness where she was like, really? Yeah, we weren't like that serious. And he's like, they're like, um, he gave you an engagement ring. She's like, I recall there was a ring. I don't remember what it was for. Like she was, I don't know whether she was trying to minimize her role in the situation or she actually was trying to stand up for Martin, but she was basically annoying on the stand and contributed very little value. Yeah. However, Anna was like, guys, let me tell you, he's a serial killer. (laughs) after we had sex he said all this crazy stuff about killing people isn't that wild (laughs) she was dishing (laughs) love it yeah so also yeah four inmates also testified against him one of which was a friend of his name michael buchanan who testified that martin said he gave michelle some oxys and sleeping pills and got her to get into the bathtub Later on, he said he had to help her out. When Buchanan asked what that meant, Martin clarified that he held Michelle's head underwater for a little while. Wow. Yep. And another inmate said that Martin at some point told him that the best way like to get high or something is to do an enema and that he had given Michelle an enema with the crushed up medication in it. To make her yeah. like super high. Go right into the bloodstream. Exactly. So after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury decided on a guilty verdict for the disgraced doctor. Good. While in jail awaiting sentencing, Martin attempted to commit suicide by dismantling a disposable razor and using the blade to slash his femoral artery. Ugh loser unluckily for him he was soon discovered by the guards and his life was spared but after his recovery his life got significantly worse because he was classified as under suicide watch where you apparently are housed alone in an isolated cell with bright shining lights on you 24 hours a day yikes because they need to see what you're up to and that you're not trying to kill yourself but that means they'll drive you crazy always having like fluorescent lighting on drive you Crazier. Crazier, yes. So he had no human interaction. And if they even took him to the showers, he had to be cuffed because they didn't know what he was going to do. So this, of course, did nothing to improve Martin's mental health. And he grew depressed. He lost weight. And of course, there's 24-7 lights on. He had a bad case of insomnia. 
This was not a good idea, my man. So eventually Martin was sentenced with the max punishment for murder, which was 15 years to life, as well as an additional one to 15 years for obstruction of justice. On July 3rd, 2014, he was tried and convicted of forcible sexual abuse for his assault on Alexis and sentenced also to the max of one to 15 years. It seemed pretty safe to assume that at 58 years old and the stack of years sentence that Martin would spend the rest of his natural years of life behind bars. And his toe injury probably set him back a bit too, right? (laughs) Yeah, I hope it was huge. So author Shanna Hogan believes it is possible that Martin had killed before, as his mistress Anna had suggested, potentially his mentally challenged patients at the developmental center, as well as his brother Rufus Roy McNeil. Most compellingly, Shanna put forward her theory of what really happened to Michelle on the day of the murder based on the evidence she collected and hours and hours of testimony she listened to while writing The Stranger She Loved. So I thought this was really interesting. She did a... And afterward, where she breaks down exactly what she thinks happened, which I found really compelling. So I wanted to read for you guys. As I worked on the case, I developed a theory of the murder. I doubt at that point, Michelle would take a handful of pills provided to her by her husband. And I don't think it would be possible for him to slip them in her food undetected. Instead, as one of the jailhouse informants testified, Martin likely delivered the medication in an enema. At around 8.30 a.m., after dropping off Giselle, Elle, Sabrina, and Ada at school, Martin may have returned home under the guise of assisting his wife with a medical issue. Michelle's autopsy later showed she was severely constipated, likely as a result of the pain pills she had been weaning off of, which can produce such an effect. As a doctor, it wouldn't be unusual for him to administer an enema to help his constipated wife. After all, he was being, quote, so sweet. Prior to administering it, he may have surreptitiously crushed the Ambien, Valium, Percocet, and Phenergan and funneled the powdered pills into the enema bag. With rectal use, medication has a more powerful and rapid effect since it bypasses the digestive system. Almost instantly, Michelle would have become sleepy, confused, and unaware of her surroundings. Maybe Martin could not redress his unconscious wife, who would have had to remove her pants and underwear for the procedure. Or if he had dressed her, the enema could have produced its intended results and Michelle may have defecated, which could explain why Martin stripped her of her pants and underwear. The pants that matched her black top were not in the bathroom or bedroom and have never been found. It's possible Martin immediately took her to the bathtub after administering the enema, or he may have returned to work to establish an alibi expecting the pills would kill her. About an hour later, he could have slipped away from the developmental center again and returned to find Michelle alive, but extremely lethargic and possibly unconscious. He could have drawn a bath, helped her to the bathroom, bent her over the tub's ledge and held her face under the water, the position he had described to his children. Water filled her lungs. She struggled, causing her stitches to split open and bleed, blood-tinged water spilling onto the tile floor. Michelle stopped moving. Her heart ceased beating. Then Martin swept his dead wife into the tub, her body slumped, head beneath the faucet, facing forward. He then used the towels to clean the floor, depositing them in the laundry room. He then rushed back to work, accepted his award at the safety fair where he demanded his photo be taken to prove his presence. At 11.35 a.m., he picked up Ada from school in one of the sickest twists. He allowed his youngest daughter to stumble upon the body of her dead mother. Yeah, it's so disgusting. Because the autopsy later showed early signs of heart disease, a condition that 
could be the result of the extreme stress of dealing with Martin's hysterics for 30 years. Basically, there was no way to prove that it was definitively drowning or arrhythmia. And given no other clues at what caused Michelle to die, the pathologist was quick to rule the death natural. It was almost a perfect murder. And if it had not been for the determination of Michelle's loved ones, especially her sister and daughters, Martin would have gotten away with it. Yep. So let's give it up to the women who fought so tirelessly for justice and the children who lost their mother. Alexis, Linda, Rachel, and Vanessa were fearless in the face of their father and brother-in-law. And they lost thousands of dollars and hours and hours and hours of their lives in their efforts to obtain justice for Michelle. And they did it. That's amazing. Bad ass. I mean, this is a devastatingly sad story, but this just goes to show with determination and love and passion, you you can accomplish almost anything and never, never give up fighting for your loved ones. Absolutely. So to close the chapter on the sad, pathetic man who brought so much death and destruction to so many, on April 9th, 2017, almost exactly a decade after he murdered his wife, the sullied Dr. Martin McNeil was found dead in the outdoor yard of his prison near a greenhouse. Dr. McNeil had used a hose and a natural gas line intended to heat the greenhouse to kill himself. So I say... Goodbye to bad rubbish. Suck it in hell, Dr. McNeil. (laughs) All right, Jesse. Yeah, that guy really pissed me off. (laughs) In conclusion, maybe you shouldn't talk about killing people as your pillow talk. That's creepy and gross. Yeah, it's not. It's not cute. Not cute. You know what is cute, though? What? Is when people fight like hell for the people they love. Damn straight, Andy. You get it, McNeil girls. Also, side note, Alexis is a doctor now and she goes by her mother's maiden name, Dr. Summers. Love. Love, 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 love. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets murdered. Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.